So, it's the year 446 BC. Down in Susa, in the winter capital of the Persian Empire, there is our man for today, Nehemiah. He's born in the Persian Empire of Jewish descent, and he has become a trusted advisor to King Artaxerxes, part of the king's inner circle with the title of cupbearer. That doesn't mean he was some kind of high-class wine waiter, sommelier, but almost certainly that he had a senior position within the king's entourage. He had status and wealth and security and prospects. But in that year, 446 BC, he is a troubled man. Because as we heard last week, news has been brought to him of the poor state that the city of Jerusalem is in. Actually, it's probably not news to him at all. He knew that anyway, because it would have been common news amongst the remnant of Jews still living in Persia. But for whatever reason, this time the report comes to him, it breaks into his security and his, his well-offness and his position and troubles him greatly. Sometimes we read or hear the same things over and over again, and it doesn't have much of an impact But then suddenly, the words that we hear or read take on a new life, a new urgency, and we know that we ought to, we must respond. And that's how it was with Nehemiah. Maybe today will be a day like that for you or for others in this church. Certainly, it will be true for many people around the world as they respond, perhaps for the first time, to the call of God in one way or another. Nehemiah has almost certainly never been to Jerusalem, the city of his ancestors. Its gates and walls were destroyed nearly 150 years ago, long, long before he was born. But this godly man, who is open to the voice of God, is challenged today by the shame and disgrace that is on Jerusalem and then on God himself. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem... We'll have the next slide, Mark. Uh, Roughly 1,000 hard, grueling miles away, the people living there are carrying on with their lives. Some people never left Jerusalem in the first place when it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Some families returned when the Persian king Cyrus allowed a number of exiles to go back. So there is a community functioning in Jerusalem. Homes have been restored and rebuilt and fitted out and enlarged. En suites have been added, rooftop conservatories installed, and lofty conversions put in place. Seventy years ago, a previous generation rebuilt the temple. But for 140 years, the walls and the gates have been in ruins. So it's a vulnerable, it's an unprotected city. It's true an attempt was made to start rebuilding the walls a few years ago. But when there was some opposition to this by outside forces and an instruction came from the Persian king to cease building, that's what the people did. They downed tools, they beat a retreat. And since then, no one has dared or bothered to rebuild it. Perhaps they just haven't been that bothered about it. A mixture maybe of fear and apathy and concern for their own needs has prevented this great project being undertaken. 
The story of the rebuilding of the ruined walls of Jerusalem or the ruined temple can easily, of course, be used for any great building project uh, to do with the worship and glory of God and proclamation of his name. Those involved in the rock project are not the only ones to draw inspiration from this book and this man, Nehemiah. But the story is not a simple blueprint of how to tackle a church renovation project. Any situation which causes us grief, which disturbs us because it's not right, which challenges our faith, can be likened to the ruined walls of Jerusalem. People ravaged by the effect of sin, whether their own or others. A natural world messed up. People who are vulnerable and at risk of exploitation. Any one of these situations can be accepted and lived with, or they can be challenged and changed by individuals who feel the hurt of them and the injustice of them and who will step up to the mark. That's what prompted the pioneer missionaries. Wilberforce in his anti-slavery campaign, Shaftesbury in his campaigns on behalf of children, Clive and Joe within Rich, Peter Hayward and the handful who started Genesis, the Eagles people working in the rural communities of Malawi, and so on and so on, a thousand times, and you will know more situations than people like that. And a situation which causes grief might involve just one person, you know, or a whole community. And God might be saying to you today, are you willing to be the one who will not ignore this, but will take this to heart and do something about it to the best of your God-given ability? Nehemiah was one such man like that. He took to the heart, his heart, the situation of a city he had never been to or seen. And then he took it to the Lord in prayer for about four months. Doesn't mean he was praying solidly for four months. No, in that time, as well as going about his normal business, he was engaged in prayerful planning and preparation. Any significant work for God nearly always requires prayerful preparation and planning. You see, when on that day in 446 BC, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah decided, today is the day I go to the boss and make a big ask, that didn't come out of nowhere. There had been four months of prayerful preparation and planning. No doubt he'd searched the scriptures as he had them. And from his reading, he knew that the state, the present state of Jerusalem was not part of God's plan nor was it in line with God's promise. And he would have asked himself, Lord, what do you want me to do about this situation? Maybe to begin with, he thought, well, I can pray. And then maybe he thought, well, I'm well off. I could send some money there to get somebody. I could commission some contractors to build the work. Then maybe he thought, perhaps I could get leave of absence to see the thing for myself. All these are good things in themselves. But then in his prayer, in his thinking, as he went about his business, it came to him that God was asking him to be the architect to sort this situation out. Who knows what questions and objections went through his head. But in the end, he must have come to that conclusion 
And he thought to himself, what will I need? Who can I get to help me in this? What are the risks and dangers? What will it mean for me and my family? He perhaps didn't know that when he did go, he was going to be away for 12 years. All this he thought through, and it ended in his mind and his spirit with, here I am, Lord. Send me. If God lays something on your heart, most of the time, not always, you'll need a season of prayerful preparation and planning. It goes for us as individuals, and it goes for us as a church. As far as the rock project is concerned, whatever else it may have got right or not got right, it's certainly not shirked on prayerful planning and preparations, currently running at about seven years. But careful, prayerful preparation and planning is not enough. To make the leap, to undertake anything significant for God, always requires courageous commitment. Did you notice that little confession of Nehemiah in verse 2? He says, I was very much afraid. It's one thing what you know to know what you have to do, and it's another thing to go and do it. That great 19th century minister and preacher Spurgeon said, A man is not a traveller because he puts a finger on a map. You can have done all the preparation in the world for a risky and dangerous journey, studied the route, bought all the equipment, recruited your teammates, but until you start out on the journey, it just remains a dream and a hope. A man is not a traveller because he puts a finger on a map. Nehemiah has done his preparation and his prayer and his planning, and he's decided that the way to start this enterprise was to go straight to the top, and make a huge ask. It was an ask that, unlikely as it seems to us, could have cost him his position, and maybe even his life. Such was the nature of the court, it would seem, that to appear anything other than calm and smiling in the presence of Artaxerxes was to invite trouble. I doubt if Nehemiah slept much the night before. His heart would have been beating hard as he took the walk to work and into the palace. It's the kind of walk that you get when you're summoned by the chief executive for a reason you know not why, or you're going for a job that you desperately want, or you're going to the hospital for the results of tests. Nehemiah was indeed a courageous, committed man, and we know that because he told us, he didn't have to, he was very much afraid. To be afraid and yet still to go ahead with something is the true mark of courage and commitment. So when Artaxerxes challenges Nehemiah as to why he's looking so mournful, Nehemiah knows this is the key moment when things could go badly wrong for him and his family, hence his fear. But he doesn't hesitate, and by way of response, he comes out with a question back to the king. It's almost petulant. May the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Why shouldn't I be sad, he says, which must have given Artaxerxes a bit of a jolt. And no doubt the rest of the court who were standing around listening were thinking to themselves, whoa, did you hear what he just said? 
I'm sure you all know, because loads of preachers use this one, the story of the pig and the hen discussing who made the bigger contribution to a full English breakfast. The chicken thought she did, but the pig told her, you're just involved, whereas I'm totally committed. How do you make that out, was the hen's reply. Well, said the pig, once you've laid an egg, you live to see another day and produce another egg. But I have to lay my life on the line for those humans to get any bacon. That's why I'm 100% committed and you're just involved. Involved or committed to the work of the Lord? Which one are you? Are you sometimes nervous or even afraid and fearful about what might be or what is required of you? Well, you're in very good company. Anyone who has ever done anything for God has also shivered in their shoes at the thought of what they might have to do. Thankfully, in Nehemiah's case, on this occasion, his courageous commitment is met with a positive response from the king. And there's a gift of a question. What is it you want? That was the response Nehemiah had hoped for, had prayed for, and he knows what he's going to say because he's prepared and rehearsed the moment. Even so, before answering the king, he allows himself a short pause in which he silently prays a prayer, probably something along the lines of, thank you, Lord. Now, please bless these words and open the king's heart. Some people call these arrow prayers, short prayers that get fired off in an instant. So now Nehemiah has the floor and apparently the king's favor as well as God's favor. And so he makes an audacious ask. To attempt anything for God nearly always requires an audacious ask. Again, did you notice what Nehemiah asked for? First of all, it's a big one. If it pleases of the king, let me send him send me to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. This is a big request. I want your permission to rebuild the city that has a reputation for rebelliousness and awkwardness. I want to rebuild the city that you said a few years ago should not be rebuilt. But to Nehemiah's relief, because God's hand was upon him, the king disarmingly asked, And uh, how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah gives him a time. In fact, as I said earlier, it was 12 years. I don't expect he said 12 years to him. And then seeing how well it's going, Nehemiah thinks, right, now's my chance. Um, uh, by the way, can I have some personal letters from you to give to the key officials that I'll meet on my way so that they'll give me safe conduct? Oh, and um, could you pay for the work, please? Uh, can I have lots and lots of timber for the gates and the walls and for the house that I will need when I get there? The cheek. The audacity of the man. But he gets what he asked for. Why? Well, Nehemiah says, The king granted my request because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. That's a great prayer to pray for other people. Lord, let your gracious hand be upon so and so. And isn't it great when things come together, as they sometimes do, like that in our lives? Asking for things does not come easy to most of us. Certainly not to me. Asking for big things is even harder. And because we're not American, we find asking for money really, really hard. I've done it a few times in my life, both in church and in my work. 
but I don't enjoy it. I was once very keen to rebuild a secondary school in North London that I had a major part in closing because it had fallen on hard times and it was a bit like Jerusalem and no one wanted to go there anymore. The buildings were standing empty. I had to go to the government and request permission to start a new school on the site of the school that had failed. And it failed partly under our watch, that was the Diocese of London. It was a hard ask to make. And some of the senior civil servants were none too keen to give us another chance. But we had the favour of the big cheese minister, Lord Adonis. So he said, yep, they can do it. All right, said the officials, you can do it, but you're only going to get five million pounds to refurbish it. You'll have to make do with that. That seems a lot, but it's not really for a school of a thousand pupils. But I took it knowing full well that I'd have to go back for more money later on. And in the end, I asked for, and I got 27 million. And it's become one of the top schools in the country with a strong Christian ethos to it. It's called the Wren Academy after Sir Christopher. Uh, just check it out. It's a fantastic school. Asking money for rock doesn't come easy, especially when I know how generous people in this church already are, and when I know that not everyone is convinced about it, and when we think about all the other causes and needs that our money could go towards. Asking people from outside, the artaxerxes of the world, to support our project um, it isn't easy either, but almost certainly it will need to be done. And some of us will have to do it with gritted teeth, a forced smile and clenched buttocks. But there we go. <laughs> of course, it would be so much easier for us if what's just happened to a church in York were to happen here. And um, I'm not sure if I'm prompting anybody here. St. Michael the Belfry in York is the church I attended when I was a student. It's also the church where Guy Fawkes was baptized and where Patrick Whitworth did his first curacy under a remarkable man called David Watson. And the church has got its own rock project on at the moment, except they call it the Impact Project. Uh, but instead of a mere three million pounds like ours, theirs is five to seven million pounds. And two weeks ago, the church announced that an anonymous donor has agreed to fund up to 5.9 million of the project. Wow. It would be amazing and wonderful if something like that happened here. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> it's not impossible, but we may have to follow a different path. In that event, prayerfully and graciously, but not apologetically and confident in God, we'll have to make the ask of lots of people. But there are other hard asks besides asking for money. Asking someone who isn't a Christian if they'd like to be prayed for or if they'd like to come to an Alpha course, for most of us, is a big ask. Or asking for help for a problem that we have and which we've kept hidden is a big ask and requires some boldness. Allowing others to help us on our way can be as challenging as doing big stuff for ourselves. And I guess that all of us here have still have big asks in our lives. And some of those big asks are addressed directly to God himself. Well, coming to an end. If we were a church where anything less than a 40-minute sermon seemed just like a thought for the day, I'd go on to the next part of the story, where Nehemiah actually gets to Jerusalem. 
It's a wonderful instance of his inspired leadership and his ability to bring others with him, as well as dealing firmly with opposition. But thankfully, over the next few weeks, we'll see and hear more of how he was able to bring the people of Jerusalem together, get them all working, and how he was able to deal with internal dissension and injustice, as well as a potentially murderous opposition from outside. It's a terrific story of a wonderful partnership between a spirit-filled man, a gracious God, and a people willing, for a time at least, to come together in unity, work hard, and give generously. But because this man went in for prayerful preparation and planning, because he put himself on the line with his courageous commitment, and because he did not shrink from an audacious ask, when he was challenged with a false charge, he was able to say, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. Whatever God has put on your heart to do, however big, however small, I pray that you'll draw inspiration from Nehemiah and start or continue that work. And I pray too that we'll be able to say unitedly in terms of the rebuilding of this church, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. Let's just pray. Gracious God, we thank you for all the good gifts you have given to us. We thank you for one another. We thank you for your word which encourages and challenges and inspires us. And we pray you'll help us to take to heart anything that I've said, anything in this chapter which is ringing true for us, to take it to heart and to live it out. Amen.